If you're waiting for like a, a plate to come by for the offering, um, there's a box outside as you leave to put a physical offering in if you're not giving online. Um, I need to give an update on the associate pastor thing if you weren't at the fun, extraordinary, and dramatic um, <laughs> meeting that we had together debating this. Um, after it was all said and done, and much was said and done, um, uh, we voted more than two-thirds to call Adam as our pastor, one of our pastors, and um, he sent me a text this week that he intends to come. He, he, he did that before we negotiated his salary, so we're going to get him for like 30000 bucks too, so it'll be great. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you have a Bible with you, um, open it to uh, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19 to 34. Uh, the first verses are going to talk about storing, not storing up treasure in heaven. And you're, you might think I'm going to preach on giving. I'm not. So if you start to have like a panic attack, you don't have to. Because um, that's not what the sermon's going to be about. We're going to talk today about, we're going to go on this series about High Point Church and what we're doing as a local church, what we're trying to be as a local church. And I'm going to specifically talk about the importance and centrality of what's called spiritual theology. So here we go. You ready? This is what Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes or See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is thrown in the fire tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <clears throat> when I was a kid, um, I did a bunch of stuff outdoors with my dad, fishing, hunting, hiking, canoeing, camping, stuff like that. My favorite was fishing, and we went fishing a good bit. We didn't catch a ton of fish, and I always thought that we probably should be catching more, but he always seemed to be having a good time. Um, I remember one, one time we were out, and we had not caught a lot of fish. It was a beautiful day, beautiful lake, beautiful times, and I had been reading like some fishing magazines, you know? I was that, that like early teen years. And I was like, let's do this, Dad, let's try this other way to fish, right? And so we like did this totally different thing that we never did, right? 
And it was like, boom, fish, boom, fish. And we were just having a great time. It's like, all these fishes, you know? And it was at this moment I realized my dad didn't know how to fish. <laughs> now, here's the thing. He knew the big picture. He knew the systematic theology of fishing. He knew there were fish. He knew they lived in water. He knew it was fun to catch them. He knew that you had to go outdoors, right? He knew it was good to have a boat sometimes. He knew all that stuff, okay? And had desire, wanted to go fishing. All this stuff, so let's go fishing, right? And he knew the practices of fishing. He knew that you could, t- you had, knew how to tie on a lure. He knew how to cast it. He knew how to reel it. And there's like a lot of guys who think they know how to fish, who really only know the practices of fishing. These are the people that if you put them in a boat by themselves on a new lake, they don't catch anything. But if you take them with a good fisherman, you put a rod in their hand, they catch a bunch of fish. These are not fishermen, okay? Because between the practices and the general idea is the dynamic and the real knowledge of what's happening, right? How do the weeds grow in a life cycle of a lake? What are the invertebrate insects? What kind of fish are in the lake? What are the bait fish? What are feeding it? What are the game fish species? How does it work? What's the depth that they're going to be at? At what time? What's the lake temperature? How does the sunshine affect how it heats up the muddy parts at the very early part of the season? How does the— And if you know all that stuff, you seem like a magic prophetic troubadour in the presence of all other men trying—usually men, not always—trying to catch fishes. There are these guys that's just like, oh, boom, right there. And you're like, how are you doing this? Right? And see, see, those are the people that know the excluded middle. Now, why am I telling you about fishing other than for you to assume that I know these things now, which I do? (laughs) And you see, part of the issue is is that in many times in life, we naturally think that if we have an idea of something that's good, and we learn a few practices associated with doing it, we get it. We get it. We're doing it. We got it, right? And we don't got it. We don't get it. It's not working. And we realize that when we realize it's not working. Like, you realize you're a bad fisherman. I had this friend, Eric Hesse, he was a pastor, and he's a missionary in, in Germany. Some of you guys have met him. He's been here, right? We would go fly fishing in these, like, little tiny creeks in Wisconsin, which I hate fishing. And I'd be like, I mean, I'm thinking I'm a good fly fish. My cast, I time on flies, I'm awesome, right? But, I'm, and I, but he's standing next to me. He's like, oh, there's one. Oh, there's, you know, he lived out there, fished every day, you know? And I, it was, I was so, I hated fishing with him because my inadequacies were displayed so profoundly, right? And when, when you realize it's not working, and you don't understand that there's an excluded middle that you just have no idea what's going on, you don't know why you're failing. And then you start feeling desperate and angry, and then you resent the person who's actually good at it, so you don't want them to teach you, and it's a really terrible dynamic, okay? Now, why am I, why am I talking about fishing? That's not why you came to church, right? The answer is because I think that that's been happening to Christianity for a really long time, especially in America. That what people have called spiritual theology or just spirituality, the part of Christian faith where we take the things God has spoken and showed about himself generally and the practices and obediences that he's commanded specifically, and we understand why they work together and what their relationship is and who we are that's doing it and like— and why certain things work and others don't, and having the knowledge to troubleshoot things when they go wrong. That area of Christian faith, especially within churches that believe in the Bible, has not been great. 
It's also been really wrong in churches that don't believe in the Bible. Part of the reason is because there was just a big fight over when the Bible's been true for like 300 years. And so a lot of Christians who believe in the risen Christ and in the scriptures have been just like sort of like fighting to prove that the Bible is true this whole time. And so you get really focused on your doctrine of God and your doctrine of sin and your doctrine of this and your doctrine of that and your doctrine of scripture, which is really important. Some of those things have to be defended or we'll lose our belief in them. But what we don't pay attention to is the, how, how is this done? How does it work? How does the flow happen? What's the dynamic? How do I understand it? And you see, when that stuff isn't tended to, a bunch of things happen, right? We don't know what to tell people when we're sharing the gospel. We don't really know what to tell them about, like, how, to, how it works. And they want to know. We live in a very diagnostic, engineering kind of generation. So they don't just want to know the, like, principles. They're like, well, how does that work, actually? And then they want to know if it's true of us. And you see, if we don't know our spiritual theology, it inhibits our spiritual growth. We don't actually experience the payoff promises in the gospel. And so we don't look like Christians, and then they don't believe what we say. And also then we aren't experiencing the promises of God. And so we know we're kind of frauds, you know. And then our kids know, and they're not all that interested in our faith. Right? I mean, it's hard to think of it getting worse than that. You know what I'm saying? And yet, we still have an ability as human beings to just sort of like ignore the most immediate, clear, present dangers. Right? Now, I have tried to write a spiritual theology for our church to operate on in a book called Substance that I wrote in 2017. It's called Substance. If you, uh, if you don't have, a lot of you have a copy. If you don't have a copy, you can get one today in the reception desk. They'll charge you $10, but listen, if you go to the new members class, HP 101, you get one for free. <laughs> for free. Right? For those of you who've read and studied the book and were here when we did the series Substance, and you want to like take it a step deeper, and you want something more complicated, but also very rich, the book Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace would be my second um, advice of what to read. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take us through kind of like a operational dynamic of the crisis I feel like is happening in American Christianity and try to help you understand why we're doing what we're doing as a church in terms of spiritual theology and our spiritual growth. Does that make sense? Okay. The first thing is there will be six of these things, okay? So just in case you're wondering. Um, the first is that we live in a time of anxious striving. Uh, outside the church, like within the culture, where we've talked about anxiety and the depression that it then causes and all the other difficulties downstream of anxiety as, quote, epidemic. Drug use is up. Suicides are up. Loneliness is up. Diversions are up. Right? And um, that's not a good sign. Inside the church, things aren't a lot better. See, like on one level, as Christians, we would be like, great. If anxiety and depression, all that kind of stuff is up in the culture— and the promises of Jesus are shining forth from us like a city on a hill. That's just a recipe for revival, right? But um, that doesn't seem totally evident, right? Because partly there is, there's trouble here in the church of Jesus Christ itself, right? And part of it is that um, people love gloating over us. So there's, there's like a lot of stories about church failure, right? Which in some ways is media porn, right? People love— taking people who are trying to be good people and saying, oh, I knew that they were terrible, right? Everybody loves that, right? And so there's a certain amount of, like, showmanship to it. But, the, the, but all those cases happen, right? There's, 
I, I don't know of any fraud cases where the, the church thing to make fun of the church about didn't actually happen, right? And additionally, um, there's a whole movement within, within like Christian churches and among Christian younger people in particular that sometimes people refer to as deconstruction or like people like kind of like taking apart their faith. Why are they taking apart their faith? Well, you, 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 you take the hood off of a car and you start taking apart the engine when you don't think it's working. Do you understand? Right? Like on some, one level I can say, look, it's very culturally um, popular to deconstruct your faith and I can sort of make fun of it. And to a certain extent, I think that like it deserves a little bit of making fun of. But— People deconstruct things that they don't think are working, right? And here's the thing. That has become popular, like, let's say in the last five years. But I started writing Substance based on this problem in 2015. Now, that was partly to tell you that I'm way ahead of the time, you know. But it's partly because, like, this is not like that, like, that's not, it's not like that strange a thing. Like, I've been seeing this, like, in Madison for years, and it's partly because Jesus has been seeing it in humanity forever. Okay. I don't know why that's dark. Do we have anything? Okay. Um, one of the things that I started doing in about 2013, I would have people come into my office and they would say, Nick, I, I just I feel like my faith isn't working. I'm frustrated. I come to church. I read the Bible. I believe in Jesus, and I am struggling. I'm struggling to be a dad and to like do my duties and stuff. I just feel awful, right? And so I, would, I started reading them. I'd say, okay, I have this list of symptoms I want to read to you. Let me get them. And I would go to my desk and I'd get out this list. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to read these to you. And just like in your mind, check off if you like emotionally connect with any of these, right? So I said, Does your, do you or your faith feel like emotionally choked or smothered? right? Are, do you feel yourself consistently fearful, anxious, or worried about things, right? Are, do you feel resentful toward God or the Christian faith? Like, like your faith isn't working. You're starting to get mad at God, and you're like, you don't want to admit it, but it, it is how you feel, right? You start to—you feel worn out, fragile, and just ready to explode. Like, shorter fuse, a little more brittle, right? You crave novelty, delicacy, amusement, or the exotic in order to engage—get engage, really engaged in something or really be happy, you feel a lack of fulfillment in regular tasks, responsibility, and roles. They just don't really do it for you. You're really looking for help in other things. Seven, you feel constantly distracted like your attention is fractured. Eight, you sense that you're becoming burrowed into your preferences more and more, and maybe more actively disliking of people with different preferences because they're a problem. And you feel like your friendships are shallow and that few people really know you. Right? Now, I had a few others, but that's a sample of them, right? And I would read them to people. And, the, and I had, some people asked me if I had a prophetic gift, right? And I said, only in the sense that I study humans and what Jesus has said about them, right? And since we have forgotten what human beings are, it's not strange that um, we don't know ourselves. And if anybody believes Jesus enough to tell us about ourselves, that feels like prophetic, right? What's happening partly is, is that people feel these ways while they're trying to believe in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't seem to be changing it. And they know that something's wrong. And so they try themselves to fix it. But it's like me trying to fix my computer, right? Like, it's more, we're more likely to have a fire than to have something good happen, right? And 
after a while, you get so frustrated with the computer being apart and trying to put together. Now it works even worse. You're, you're getting nowhere. You've got no prospects, right? Have you had that feeling where things are getting worse? You're still, you're still upright, but things are getting worse, and you have no prospects to make them better. So the, it's a losing equation. It's, it, you know what I mean? Like, you have to go somewhere. You still have time. You're not late, but you can't find your keys. The problem is you've looked everywhere you, where you know to look for the keys. You have no idea where else to look. You've got seven more minutes before you're going to be late, but you've got no prospects of what to do to actually find them. That's terrible. That's way worse than having 30 seconds before you're late and remembering you left your keys on your nightstand. Right? And that's how people feel, spiritually speaking. They feel like they're in this negative equation. They're growing increasingly desperate. They're increasingly frustrated. The God they're supposed to love and worship and sing songs to of adoration, they're secretly resentful towards. They don't know how to get rid of that. And they, they don't know of any way to change it. And they don't know how long they can keep on with this. And at some point, they, people just go, this is crazy. I'm not doing this anymore. And they leave the church or they leave their family or they, etc. Does that make sense? Or they blow up and make it other people's problems, right? Now, here's the beginning of some good news about this. So I would call that anxious striving. Anxious striving. It's horrible, okay? The second thing is, like, Jesus knew about this a long time ago. Jesus just read it right off the page to us in all kinds of places, and so did his apostles. We just, because we struggle with what's called the flesh or indwelling sin, there are certain things we don't want to know about ourselves. And so you can read the Bible, and it can be right there, but you can just read over it like it's not there, right? But Jesus is right there saying it. In fact, one of the ways I picked up on this was I was reading Bible passages that I'd read a hundred times, but I was thinking of certain people's names and the problems that they were having. And then some stuff started to jump off the page on me. Let me give you an example of this. In Mark 4, there's the parable of the sower, where this guy, he goes and he plants seeds everywhere. And essentially, there's like some that fall on the path, some that fall on rocky ground, some that fall among thorns and thistles, and then some that fall on good ground. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, listen, the word is good. The message of the gospel is good. Different people are going to respond to it very differently. Don't let yourself think that that's a problem with the seed. It's a problem with the soil. And some places, the soil, it's going to grow great, right? And so there's two places, the path and the rocky stuff, where it does, it hardly grows. It gets picked up, taken away, or it grows and just dies right away. Then there's soil where he says this. He says, still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. I had read that passage like, I don't know, 300 times? But for some reason, one day in 2015, the word choke jumped off the page at me. Because I had just sat with a couple of men describing how they felt about their life. And I would best describe it as they were feeling like they were being strangled. And that their faith was being strangled out of them. And when I read that word, it jumped off the page. I thought, there it is! Right? And then I said, why does, why does that happen? And Jesus had just explicitly said. He's like, listen, there, some people have the word, but it's, it's being choked by other things. Namely, worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and just the desire for other things. Now, that may sound too simplistic, but as you begin to read more of what Jesus says, and once you key in on this, it's that you actually start to see it everywhere. So another place, Jesus is talking to people. He's inviting them to believe in him. He says, listen, 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Right? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? Now, a lot of people have that on mirrors, and they memorize it, and they think it's a fantastic verse. But one of the things sometimes we don't do is, is like reverse engineer the logic. Like, why does he feel like he needs to tell this to people? Why, did, why is he desperately pleading for people to accept this and therefore accept him? And the answer is because the normal state of human experience is weary burden and anxiety. Like we can say anxiety and depression are at epidemic levels, but that's, that doesn't mean that people are now all of a sudden feeling depressed or anxious. When we talk about those as mental health issues, that's just the number of people presently broken by the level of anxiety and depression that they're experiencing. What Jesus is saying is the baseline for human beings in this world, unless something radically happens to them, even if they believe in God and are religious, is anxiety, feeling choked, feeling burdened, feeling weary, feeling desperate, right? So Jesus in chapter 6, as he's laying out how to be free from worry, he doesn't start with like, don't worry, listen, look, God feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers. Like on one level, any hippie could say that. You know what I'm saying? And listen, I don't mean that derogatorily. The world needs some hippies, right? Like you need somebody in your life. It's It's fine. It's fine. We don't have to take showers or shave our armpits. Everything is going to be okay. Just enjoy life. Like, everybody needs one of those people in their life. You know what I mean? Especially like Midwesterners, right? But that's not how Jesus starts. He starts with this. He's like, listen, here's here's the bottom line. Nobody can serve two masters. If you try, and those masters are different— You can't be loyal to both at the same time. You can't live for both at the same time, right? It's like putting your feet on two boats that are slowly moving apart. It's not a good equation, right? He said, you can't serve both God and mammon. Now, in modern translations, the word mammon is often translated money. In Greek, it is literally mammon. It is the God of this world. Jesus is intentionally personifying it because he's saying it's a master. It's a God. What that means is what Jesus is saying is that your problem—don't read that yet. Your problem is not your faith in Jesus. Do you understand? If you believe in Jesus, your problem is not your faith in Jesus. Because I see people struggling with that. They're like, maybe I can believe more, you know? It's like, okay, great. That's fine. Let's try to—maybe you could build a better foundation for your faith. Maybe you can grow in the depth of your faith. But just believe more— no, so you see what's happening is if what, you've, what you have is a garden where you fertilized it well, you've watered it well, everything's growing up, both the good plants and the weeds, and the weeds are choking your good plants to death. Watering and fertilizing more gets you nowhere. In fact, it probably hurts because weeds metabolize the water and the, fer- the fertilizer faster. And so grow up and choke it all the more. You've got a weed right? Your problem is not your religion. Your problem is your second religion. The worship of the idol and God of mammon that is choking to death your faith in the living Jesus. 
And we don't want to know that about ourselves. Because we like her or him, however you want to imagine. Baylor Ashworth, you take your pick. Because it promises a lot and it doesn't demand a lot other than your blood. I mean, Jesus demands your allegiance and gives his blood. (laughs) Mammon professes its allegiance to drink your blood. Now you tell me which is a better deal. Right? What that does to us when we have those two religions is it creates a cycle of fragility. Worldliness makes us weak and fragile. And think about this. Psychologists are now moving from trying to keep kids from being anxious to realizing you can't do that. Not in this world. What you have to actually do is build resiliency. Which is ironic because worldliness produces fragility. Jesus is all about resiliency. Like he's all, he's all about being able to face a persecutor who's going to kill you, who is your enemy, and love them. There's no more resilient human than someone who has the spirituality of Jesus. And my desire is for us to learn a spiritual theology that will make us Christians actually possess the spirituality of Jesus. Because when we don't, what happens is there is this cycle of the anxiety, restlessness, desperation, compulsiveness, distraction, resentment, weariness, to more anxiety that just goes around and around in a positive feedback loop, and it feeds off itself, and it feeds off itself as it makes us more desperate and more brittle and more fragile, and we become vaporous, like it says in Ecclesiastes. Right? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. The word technically in Hebrew is vaporous, which meaningless is not a bad translation, but like mist. It just, there's nothing to it. And not only is our faith in mammon to believe in that which is vapor, but we get reshaped into the image of our master. When we believe in worldliness, we become more vaporous, more fragile. When we believe in the living Christ, we are remade into the image of our creator in true righteousness and holiness. There could not be a bigger difference. And Jesus could not be clearer about what he's doing in us. That we have to put off the old self, which is in this feedback loop of worldliness, and put on the new self, which takes the the virtues and purposes of Jesus and applies them, and they work and feed off of each other and build each other and build each other and build each other from strength to strength. All right, so the third thing is that fundamental then to be rescued from this is you have to see it and you have to leave it, okay? You have to get a divorce from the God mammon, because we are behaving like we are married to her. And you have to get a full legal, like, anger at each other, setting each other's cars on fire divorce. Do you understand? It's not going to be amicable. Mammon doesn't let anybody go lightly. And you have to see it in order to do that. You got to see—I mean, have you had this before, like, a friend who's, like, in a terrible relationship? And they're like, it's not that bad. You're like, it's real bad. Okay? That's what Jesus is trying to do with all of us with sin, right? Like, like, basically, you could read the Gospels this way. All of humanity has a relationship with mammon. And it's a very abusive, very terrible romantic relationship. And Jesus comes along and is like humanity's older brother. And he's like, this is a bad relationship. And you're like, is it that bad? I mean, I feel like it's companionship. Like, it's good. He's like, no, it's, it's, it's really bad. You need to break up. Like, I mean, that would be too simplistic. But like, there's something to that, right? 
Now, in the verses right before those I last read to you, Jesus says this thing that feels cryptic, but it's not. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body's full of light. Right? If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Meaning, if you can see, your eyes will take in light, and you can see what's really there, and then you can operate on the basis of what's there. Right? So I can walk, and I'd be like, oh, look, there's a podium. I'll move around the podium instead of running to it. Right? That seems really—it feels easy to me. But if I was literally blind and my eyes couldn't take in the light of the world— I wouldn't know it was there, right? There's another place where Jesus says, listen, the blind can't lead the blind, or they all run and fall into and fall into the same stuff. Like, spiritual sight is critical, and Scripture calls that discernment. Being able to see what's there, which we're not good at because we actually don't want to know what's there because we want to, we want to keep our mammon. And so we need Jesus to be, to be like, okay, here's the thing you need to see. And that becomes the light that comes into our spiritual eyes so that we can discern what's there. What we pay attention to, what we see it as, and whether we believe Jesus' assessment of it becomes the first most important thing about responding to him in faith. You have to agree with him about the nature of the world and the actual problems that we face and who we are and where we are in it to begin to build a spiritual theology. How does this all work? What's actually going on? How do I really engage with it? Right? You have to discern, and then you have to act decisively. Right? You have to have faith. And Jesus says this. Now, now in a number of cases, Jesus speaks in trans transactional categories. So he'll say something like, listen, repent and believe. So when Mark's gospel starts, he's repent and believe in the kingdom. Right? Now, it is in some ways as simple as that. In Romans 10, 9, it says to become, to come into Christ, to become a Christian, you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, and you confess through the mouth that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. In that sense, it's transactionally that simple. But in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't say it that way. Because Jesus isn't giving a transactional dynamic for how you become a Christian, he's talking about our spiritual lives and the transition of our way of looking at the whole world. He's doing something slightly different. And this has to happen too in everybody who believes. There has to be a complete transformation of the way you look at everything from thinking you can serve two masters to how he ends the passage. He says, listen, all the stuff of this world, all the stuff that mammon pledges and says she'll get for you. He says, listen, the pagans, that is people who don't believe in, in the God of the Bible or the God of Jesus Christ, right? He said, they run after all these things. That is, you get it? They're expending their energy, and they're focusing their attention and interest on these things. He's like, and you need to not do that. In the primary place for you, it needs to be, seek first his, and in this case, this means God, holistically. God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, you might not like that. You might be like, well, Nick, I thought it was just about having a relationship with Jesus. And like, I have a relationship with Jesus, and we can all have relationships with Jesus. Yes on the basis of what shared interests and dynamics, right? Every relationship has implicit or explicit rules. Like any relationship you have, you have the relationship partly because you believe you have an implicit agreement with that person, that you're interested in similar things, and you can expect it to receive and give certain things between you that are just and good and beneficial, right? I.e., what are God's interests? That is his kingdom. Like what is he ruling over and how is he ruling over those things? How is he interacting with them? What do they, how do they matter, right? And his righteousness. What are the dynamics of relating? 
What do other people deserve from us? And what do we deserve from them? And how does that dynamic work in that relationship? There's, it, it's not like there's some kind of opposition between having a relationship with Jesus and having as our first priority of focus and sight being our pursuit of his kingdom and his righteousness. They're the same thing, talked about in different ways. And he says, if that is your first love, your first interest, what is God ruling over? How is God's rule? So mammon claims to rule everything, and everybody who doesn't follow the Lord acts like they, mammon does rule everything. There's a reason why, listen, there's a reason why Jesus didn't say Satan there or the devil. He could have said, you can't serve both God and the devil. He could have said that. He did not say that on purpose. Because if you said, well, what God does the world think they're worshiping? It's not the devil. It's being a realist about what matters to people, about what affects our lives, usually in a materialist, pragmatic, how do you get ahead, how do you win kind of way. That's mammon. Now, mammon bows prostrate before Satan. We would say as believers, biblically speaking, but it's a different God. Right? Does that make sense? It's a different idol, I should say. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you refuse to bow to mammon and you come to God pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness, then all the things you really need in this world, God will give those to you too. What matters is your focus, what you give your attention to, what you care about, and therefore what you exert your energy towards. Right? Now, recognizing that, one of the questions that people will often ask then is, okay, so then how would we summarize the whole of the teaching of Scripture relative to God's kingdom and his righteousness such that we could actually pursue it, right? And what I try to do in the book Substance is to sort of like, like narrow that down to like four major things. And those are, I just call those the pursuit of spiritual substance, right? And they are these, and I can't go very deep into these today, okay? The first is sacrificial love. Without the pursuit of love, we're not pursuing God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, the definition of love is going to be disputed. We'll get to that in number two. But recognizing that the goal of our life is love. Love for God, love for others, a right ordering of loves in and toward ourselves, even a loving of our enemies. And the triumph of real Christian spirituality is our capacity to love all things in creation. God, others, but also things like the life he's given us. So, and if that's achieved, then what will we not feel desperate about and angry about and resentful about? Well, our life. The second is the mind of Christ. That is, it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, listen, don't be conformed in your mind to the pattern of this world, i.e. worldliness or mammon but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to know what God's will is, and you'll see that it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Not just for God, but for you. That his will is good for you. His will it has the ability to be something you can be pleased with if you understand it well, and it's perfect. It's exactly as it should be. The third is virtuous freedom. Um, the, the point of following the Lord is actually not learning a lot of rules and following them. 
God actually intentionally said he has put away the law, not because the law isn't a summary of what loving actions would be, but because law is by definition limited and brittle. Right? I told a story a few years ago about this guy, this guy who took his son to a, um, a, a Brewers game. This is years ago, right? And they're at the Brewers game. His son is like eight, and he's like, yeah, get whatever drink you want. And the son um, says he wants a hard, uh, Mike's hard iced tea, right? Or hard lemonade, right? And so the, the guy goes, yeah, yeah, give me the, uh, the Mike's lemonade and, the, and this, right? And he gets these two. He hands the kid the lemonade, right? And they're watching the game. And then he turns, and there's a police officer. And they like take him out of the game, they hand the kid over to, like, Child Protective Services. This ends up going to court. And everybody says, in the whole system, they're like, look, this is completely stupid. This is the dumbest thing in the world. This is what I have to do. Right? It's a classic example of how, why rules and laws suck. Because you, you just need one person with enough virtue and common sense to know what the right thing to do is and to be free enough as a steward just to do it, to stop the whole process. All you needed was a manager to come up to the guy and be like, hey, there's alcohol in that, and he can't drink it. That's all you needed. But you see, if you have all these procedures and policies and laws and stuff that everybody has to do, then people stop being virtuous and taking authority in their, their realm of action and flourishing, and they just do the minimum. They do their job. Which if you've ever interacted with a bureaucracy, you know how sick that is. More laws, more rules, more bureaucracy, more sclerosis, more nothing getting done, more people like controlling their little part of it, right? And nobody doing the right thing in the place to move it all forward. And God did not come and give the blood of his own son to produce an enormous spiritual bureaucracy. <laughs> I imagine that the demons relate like that. And when, when C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, he portrayed hell as this big bureaucracy memos going around, and people, and people had this job and that job, and because he thought bureaucracy was hell. But it, like, that is a literal description of more rules, less good. And you see, the idea of Christian faith is, is that when the law of love is operating, when we have learned all the laws and understand the will of the God behind them, so we understand the activities of his kingdom and his righteousness, then we literally don't need any laws. And we act better, more lovingly, and more justly than a people who have a billion laws. Because we function on conscience and virtue. We're well-formed creatures. And so heaven doesn't have to be a place of law, and it can be the place of perfect justice as we become fit for it. And then lastly is keeping up with the Spirit. In step with the Spirit, there is a—Jesus proclaims that the Spirit comes to live in us, and you see, if we're mainly listening to mammon, we cannot listen to the voice of the Spirit who usually works through our intuitive conscience. The internal sense of what is good. Oftentimes you can't really tell the voice of the Spirit and the voice of your own conscience and intuition. They work together because once you turn to God, the Spirit is perfecting nature. He's, he's moving you forward. And so you—like when you're walking forward and somebody's giving you a little help, you don't always know how much is the little help and how much is you going forward. Right? When my son, he, he has a physical disability, we would go hiking. There were, there were times we'd go hiking, and I'd just put my finger on his back, and I'd just push him a little bit. And it made all the difference. He was just, whoop, off he went. Right? And, and so sometimes when you're a believer, you don't always—the Holy Spirit doesn't just like megaphone to most people. Some people will have experience here or there where they will feel like the Holy Spirit of God literally says something that is like basically audible. And they're like, okay, that was definitely God. Okay? 
Now, it's assuming that you can tell the difference between that and a strong, like, reaction of past trauma that feels like it's a voice yelling in your consciousness, okay? So let's, that could be an hour there, but we'll just put that aside like it's no big deal, okay? But like some people have these very profound speakings of the Holy Spirit into their life, right? Or they get a very strong sense of peace about something they feel like it is very easy to interpret. That's not how most people experience this, right? Even prophetically, like if you go to a charismatic church right now, and they're like doing prophetic ministry, usually they don't go like, oh, yep, I heard that literally, and I'm going to say it verbally. They'll say, you'll feel an impression. You might like imagine a picture. And you're like, that's really subjective, right? Like if you're thinking objectively speaking, we'll see. But part of the thing is, that is how the scriptures talk about the Spirit leading us and keeping us in step with Him. We're like, we know what Jesus taught. We're running after Him. We're following Him in conscience and in good faith. And then the Spirit is like directing us in that. But there's also an improvisational and mystical part of that. It's like, it's like getting so good at the saxophone or the piano that now you really can play jazz. You're within the constraints of love, God's kingdom, His purposes, His righteousness. You know those scales. You know that song. But you're so good at it now that you can improv with the other musician. And the Holy Spirit can come in and you can kind of like improv your way through and you can do stuff that even virtue can't do. Like knowing, oh, I should go talk to that person. Or I need to spend more time with this kid. Or maybe it's time to make this change. Virtue, virtue doesn't make those kinds of intuitive decisions. It informs us morally and structurally, but it doesn't subdirect us improvisationally. And God gives us the Holy Spirit to work with our conscience, our intuitions, intelligence, and stewardship to decide what to do. And without that peace, usually we will revert to a kind of legalism or stuffiness or an unintuitive relationship to things. Everything will be black and white to us, even as we try to transcend law. Does that make sense? Now, to do these things, I say in the book that I think there's four things that are directly pointed against to combat worldliness. I'm not going to break these out today. Maybe I'll do it next week. But there are these four things. To embrace the ordinary. As long as you're trying to be like, as long as you can't embrace the responsibilities, the roles, and the dynamics of your life, you can't be happy, right? Like when I, when I see myself like shopping for fishing lures online when I should be writing a sermon, or thinking about like what elk tag I'm going to apply for, when I should go down and talk to my wife who just got back, and I'll probably have to wash the dishes while I do it. That's the dynamic. That's the, that, but that's, that's the biggest question of my whole life. Whether I accept the dignity of the ordinary thing that I'm doing and do it not typically, but greatly. A great life isn't being well-known. It's not being a star. It's not being important in politics or some kind of business mogul. A great life is you're in the ordinary slot. You just do it beautifully. Right? To do that, we need to realize we are in the most diverted age of humanity that's ever existed. And if we're going to not be diverted to all of Mammon's little devices— literally and figuratively on the word devices, then we had better get our butts in gear about what we're doing. Because no set of human beings has ever been as wealthy and aimless and diverted as us. Which God bless us, right? We're all, none of us are in calorie deficit, you know? But it's a danger too. Prosperity, 
The Bible does not curse prosperity. It just warns us of the dangers of prosperity. The third is, therefore, we're going to have to embrace discipline in all kinds of ways. I'm not going to get into that right now. And we do that through the formational community of the local church. Which means, as long as I'm the pastor at High Point, here are five things I will be completely unapologetic about. I'm not afraid to diagnose worldliness. Some people think it's unsophisticated to talk about worldliness. Don't fundamentalists talk about the next— Don't fundamentalists think everything's worldliness. Yes, they do. And it's one of the things they're right about. Okay? So there it is. I trust Jesus. Okay, second is, we need a strong spiritual theology. We can't just be all systematic theology and then go do this practice. Spiritual theology is what's most lacking, most necessary, and we live in a diagnostic generation where everybody wants everything explained to them. Spiritual theology is the getting things explained to you of Christianity. We got to get a lot better at it. Third is, therefore, we need to contextualize because that's what people need, both inside the church, outside the church, and our younger people. Fourth is, we care whether or not our spirituality delivers on God's promises. Without a spirituality, without a spiritual theology, without understanding how it actually works, you will have a true systematic theology, you'll do practices that you hate, and you will not be a Christian. None of the things God says will happen, and you will happen. And it will, I mean, can you think of a bigger travesty than that? We have to do that. I want to experience the beauty of loving like Jesus loved more than like 4% of my life. And I want my neighbors to be able to taste it. And we're a community of gracious striving, not anxious striving. We're going to strive. We're going to do our best to live beautifully with Jesus. And we're going we're to go after him with everything we have. First Peter 3, 5 says, Therefore, because Jesus has given you all power in everything, make every effort. But the striving has to be gracious. I want to climb that mountain. I want to chase after Jesus. I want to keep in step with the Spirit. I want to do it. I like exercising spiritually. If the striving is gracious, it doesn't really feel like striving. It's like work that you love. I don't want to be idle. I'd rather wash the dishes than just sit. And I want to be a church that feels that way too. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to, um, to be a church that has a vibrant spiritual theology. I want every student who leaves here and goes to college, every student who leaves here and gets a job, every person who moves to another city, every person who lives in this local church to have a full, rich, integrated spiritual theology. And in so doing, to create unity between different churches trying to work this out. So that when we interact with charismatic brothers and sisters, we say, oh yes, keeping in step with the Spirit. Oh yes, tell me more about how you think about that. Or we talk about more ritualistic brothers and sisters. Oh yes, spiritual disciplines. What are the ones you use and how do they help you? So that the church can be more unified as it pursues Christ. And I want to be a place where we actually experience what it looks like to learn how to be a Christian. How to really divorce mammon and have as our first interest your kingdom and your righteousness. And so to actually experience the promises of the peace that you offer because your yoke is easy. And what it actually looks like to not have to worry about all the things of mammon because we believe we're much more important than sparrows. And you are our true interest. And you will give us the other things. And we know how to get those things by pursuing your greater things. Help us to be a church like that, God. And help that to define us as a church together. We pray in Jesus' name.